Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash Burnett. Welcome back to Berlin Inside Out, the foreign affairs podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany, in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council, and I'm here with my friend and co-host Aaron Gash-Burnett, a journalist specializing in German politics. And Aaron, today we go west, to Paris, after spending the last several episodes exploring Germany's oft-neglected but key relationships in Central and Eastern Europe, as well as its changing relations with both Poland next door and the Nordics to the north. Now, if you were to ask many people in Germany, whether they're in the German Foreign Ministry or even just on the street, Which relationship is Germany's most important bilateral? Some might answer the US and think of Washington, but many more would likely say France. Moreover, when Germans think of Europe, in foreign policy terms at least, they also tend to default into thinking of France. Why is that, Aaron? Well, Ben, that's because what is now the European Union was designed in great part to make war between France and Germany, Europe's two big countries that had been devastated by two world wars, essentially impossible by integrating the two to such an extent that the price of waging war would simply be too high. Right, and so we had the European Coal and Steel Community, signed in 1951, allowing mutual oversight of and interference in these two crucial industries, also crucial for war making. But it was about more than preventing war, wasn't it? It was about allowing the countries of Europe to realize and create, as well as to pursue common and complementary interests. Definitely, and, in, and so in 1957, Uh, we had France and then, uh, at the time, West Germany signed the Treaty of Rome along with uh, the other founding six countries to create the European Economic Community. Since then, so much of what is decided at the European level is first decided bilaterally between Paris and Berlin. And the relationship between the French president and the German chancellor sets a lot of the tone for what happens in Europe as a whole the uh, famous Franco-German motor of European integration. Uh, a particularly iconic image that comes to mind right away is François Mitterrand and Helmut Kohl, who in September 1984 held hands in front of a memorial wreath in Verdun. And together they pushed for and brought about the 1992 Treaty of Maastricht, which created the euro. Although, as we know, the euro was Mitterrand's price for agreeing to German reunification. And we shouldn't forget that German reunification was actually met with initial skepticism, not not only in London, but also in Paris. And so it seems kind of historically ironic that the that Germany has benefited from the euro almost more than, perhaps more than any other country, right? Um, it did go ahead, nonetheless. We, I have euros in my wallet right now. Uh, but fast forward to the euro crisis, where Angela Merkel and Nicolas Sarkozy often meant just ahead of European summits, and were sometimes accused by other countries gathered there of basically deciding what euro policy was going to be without consulting um, everyone else. Properly, uh, we also saw how an uncertain look between Merkel and Sarkozy following a question over Italy's debt uh, at a joint press conference panicked the markets uh, and resulted in Silvio Berlusconi resigning just a few days later. Uh, historically, the Franco-German relationship has been described as the motor which drives Europe forward or stays and spins in place to the frustration of Paris and Berlin's other European partners. But lately, that motor seems to have stalled, not least because of some clear differences of opinion between Olaf Scholz and Emmanuel Macron over Ukraine and Central and Eastern Europe within the EU, 
which is part of the reason why we went to those countries first before heading west to Paris for this podcast. Uh, and Ben, we've talked about Olaf Scholz's Seitenwende speech many times, uh, but you were in the room when Emmanuel Macron uh, made a highly significant speech of his own at Globesec Security Forum earlier this year in Bratislava, one that certainly didn't escape Berlin's notice. He said of the Central and Eastern Europeans on Russia policy, we lost an opportunity to listen to you. Uh, ben, why was that speech so significant? And why did its sentiments make some in Berlin nervous? Well, first, Aaron, that very choice of words, we lost an opportunity to listen to you, was a direct reference back to uh, the run-up to the Iraq war in late 2002, early 2003, when uh, Jacques Chirac uh, famously said to the countries that were about to join the European Union at that time, you lost a good opportunity to shut up. Right. And because they've been speaking out in support of the American and British line on invading Iraq. And that led, as we know, to Donald Rumsfeld's famous distinction between old Europe, uh, symbolized by France and Germany, and new Europe, symbolized by the countries we've been visiting in the last few weeks. Now, talking about the speech itself, what was the aim? The aim was rapprochement, to use a French word. You see, we're not averse to that. To actually be rebuild relations with Central Eastern Europe, a region with which France has very low trust, uh, or there's low trust in French foreign policy, despite a very rich history of cultural and societal cooperation and friendship, especially in the interwar period. But it's been on geopolitics and security that uh, Paris has fallen out with Central Eastern Europe. Uh, many of Central Eastern Europeans are suspicious of French visions for strategic autonomy, which for them would mean autonomy from the US, and thus sacrificing their main and only true security guarantor on the altar of French self-aggrandizement, or so they see it. Now, beyond trying to correct that impression, Macron does also seem to have genuinely made a substantial shift on position towards the region, and one based on a recalculation of interests. It's a recognition of the power shift to the east in the EU and NATO that Olaf Scholz has also spoken of, but also an unwillingness to let Germany by default dominate the Central and East European region. And so taking advantage of Germany's current flux and indecision, Macron sees the initiative. Um, as befits someone who's been known as the world's greatest think tanker at various times. He seized the, uh, seized the moment. But of course, he has the responsibility, unlike think tankers like us, for putting it into practice. But as I put it to Macron at Globesec, France will need more than better rhetoric if it's to be rebuild trust. It needs to take concrete steps to show Central and Eastern Europe that it's really switching course and can be trusted. And to Macron's credit, he actually took one of those steps, uh, in fact, the one I suggested, by backing Ukraine's NATO membership at the Vilnius summit, while Germany was one of the blockers. Later on in the show, we'll be joined by Jakob Ross, an expert on Franco-German relations here at the Council, Sylvie Kaufmann, uh, a foreign affairs columnist with Le Monde, uh, Camille Grand with the uh, European Council on Foreign Relations, and Georgina Wright, Deputy Director for International Studies at Institut Montaigne. And that's part of our two-episode special on Franco-German relations, so there's plenty of time to get stuck into the detail as well as to get the big picture on this. First, we spoke to Nicolas Tensa, a French civil servant, uh, academic, and writer, and founding president for the Center of Study and Reflection for political action in France about Germany and France's current at-odd stance over Ukraine's future that Ben just mentioned. Uh, let's listen in. Nicholas, France and Germany have long been uh, thought of as the engine that leads the EU, the Franco-German motor. 
But is that necessarily true to the same extent anymore? I think that's basically France and Germany at the beginning of the existence of the EU, it was the economic uh, community at that time were very useful, basically because they brought together the very idea of peace, they were very instrumental in pushing forward also the, the single market and what follows. And also just uh, remember even recently, you know, when there was, I mean, the need to elaborate and to create a kind of uh, rescue plan uh, after the COVID-19 crisis, it was very nice. But when it comes to foreign policy, I must say very frankly that the French-German couple was a catastrophe. Uh, because, of course, it was uh, trying to appease Russia, uh, to re-engage with Russia, and remember, let's say, for instance, in 2021, where France and Germany were trying to push forward the idea of a new meeting between Russia and the EU, uh, the European Council, it was in June 2021, and then it collapsed because of the rights opposition of the other countries. And uh, I think that France certainly has now perceived or uh, basically misled it, it was. Uh, and when we take, for instance, the speech uh, given by Macron at Bratislava Globsec uh, on May uh, 31st, 31st uh, I mean, basically, he acknowledged that we are not listening enough to the, the Eastern and uh, Central European countries, uh, that we made a mistake by refusing to grant a map uh, to Ukraine in Georgia in Bucharest summit in 2008. And uh, so you mean for NATO membership? Yes, for NATO membership, absolutely. And so I think it's very important that France now recognize the mistake. And even uh, Germany, with the new Titan vendor, uh, had made also some progress, you know, especially in the delivery of weapons in supporting Ukraine. And France, uh, right now, is very instrumental in favoring, and that's a big difference with Germany, in uh, favoring uh, NATO membership for Ukraine. And, uh, you know, France said that we have to, to immediately you know, uh, admit or to create the conditions without new conditions uh, to admit uh, Ukraine, you know, in NATO. But unfortunately, it failed because of the opposition mostly of Germany and the U.S. in Vilnius summit on July uh, 11th and 12th. Uh, so uh, I think that's quite important to have also uh, this idea that there is a big difference right now uh, between uh, France and Germany, especially when it comes to Ukraine. For instance, France has accepted, it was announced by President Macron on July 11, just uh, before the Vilnius summit to deliver scalp long-range missiles to Ukraines, uh, and Germany still refuses, and I don't have, I mean, very serious hope, uh, to deliver Taurus long-range besides to Ukraine. And that's also a difference, the difference of on NATO, etc. Uh, and if we consider uh, the realities of, I will say, the relationship between uh, Olaf Scholz and Emmanuel Macron, I must say the relationship are not that good. Uh, you had a lot of uh, discontents uh, on many issues like uh, energy, uh, like uh, you know the, 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 the military uh, um, contracts or alliance on uh, on uh, fighter jets, uh, also on tanks. Uh, everyone hopes that finally uh, they will reach an agreement, but it's not made right now. And so also, I mean, the German-French couple is... Uh, 
in shambles or probably need certainly to be rebuilt and it's not rebuilt right now. And this is, but I'm also seeing that this is also seems to be an issue um, really at the political elite level and, and uh, it's certainly the leadership between the two countries. If we look at um, support, for example, in France and Germany uh, for Ukraine joining the EU, for example, in terms of public support, it's very similar in, in, in both those yes, countries. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you have a public support, you know, in both countries. And uh, for instance, it was very recently an opening poll, you know, in France and basically uh, more than 80% of uh, the voters dislike Putin, more than 80 support Ukraine, they consider Russia a threat, uh, and that's a big shift, because even if you consider the voters of the far-right parties in France, you have still have more than 50% supporting Ukraine and disliking Putin. Uh, it doesn't mean that it matters really, if, I mean, for those voters, because they will still vote for the far-right parties, Marine Le Pen or Eric Zemmour, for other reasons, because of migration issues, security issues, etc. That's certainly, but it means that basically, uh, you know, there is no more uh, alignment uh, with the stance of the pro-Putin party in France. Uh, which is, I mean, very, very important, and so in Germany, uh, you have exactly. But the real problem is who in translate in full support, because basically all the allies are, have, remain, are still remaining halfway, uh, and even for France, for instance, France delivered long-range missiles, but not the Mirage 2000, for instance, to Ukraine. We have seen this kind of difference, uh, or this change in France with respect to uh, the question of, of Ukraine membership of EU and NATO, and we have certainly seen that uh, more um, fall in the lines of, of what the Central and Eastern European countries are, are saying. Um, and we've seen more of a reluctance in Germany and certainly in the US to come quite that far. Is this perhaps a um, opportunity for um, France uh, to build some of those bridges with Central and Eastern European countries? And how does that affect Germany if it's then basically sitting on the sidelines yeah. after that? I think it's absolutely right. And because, you know, it was, as I was already mentioning, you know, the speech of uh, Emmanuel Macron in Bratislava. It was a U-turn, I mean, in France policies uh, toward, uh, toward Russia. And just after, uh, Emmanuel Macron added other, you know, very strong words about EU membership that must come as early as possible. And so for the other enlargements uh, to Moldova, to the Balkan states, etc. Because before, there was a kind of conditionality. France was saying, okay, we have first to reform the EU, to reform the EU institutions, to have a qualified for majority votes for more issues. And now uh, we have to change, I mean, also the, the, the representations, uh, you know, of the, of, the, of the states, you know, in the EU Council, in the EU Commissions. We have to revamp the institutions. We have, a, we have to but, do but all I of mean, this deepening. Okay, but but the, the real issue is if we are waiting for that, I mean, uh, everyone will be dead at that time. Uh, because uh, <laughs> basically, I mean, there is absolutely no agreement uh, within the 20th Seven uh, for uh, reforming uh, the EU institutions. You have a lot of oppositions on so many issues. But no, France is saying exactly something completely different, which is, first of all, we have to enlarge. We have to go uh, as quick as possible uh, to, to have, I mean, Ukraine and Moldova at least on board. Germany will remain a very key partner when it comes to, 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 to economy and to innovations, uh, uh, regulations on uh, AI and other kind of issues. Uh, I think that's absolutely important to have this in mind. 
uh, also on social issues, you have also discontent, but they have to find an agreement on, I mean, ecological transitions and this kind of thing. But when it comes to foreign policy, uh, certainly France should be more aligned and will be more aligned with uh, the central and European countries. But of course you have uncertainties there because we, we do not know what will happen to, to Slovakia with FICO, what will happen you know, with Poland, what will happen with other countries. I am not confident that all, I mean, the, even the central and eastern European countries uh, will follow exactly the same line in uh, the years or decades to come. And that's also a question mark. Yes, obviously we're sitting here in Prague today, uh, but looking over the border as well to Poland and what will happen in the election there. Um, but I just want to push a little bit more on this French transition towards Central and Eastern Europe, the, the shift in position. Is it really something the Central East Europeans can believe in and how will they know? Well, I think it will take time, certainly, uh, for those countries to believe in France, because basically the confidence, the trust uh, was heavily damaged. Uh, you know, uh, since so many years. Uh, we are familiar with that. Yes, exact. exactly. And that, no, that we've never you know. So, I mean, certainly uh, France will have to send more signals, you know, in the years to come uh, that it is a true alliance. Uh, otherwise, I mean, it would fail. And we could expect, uh, I mean, any kind of words from the, the, the president uh, that could immediately deteriorate. I mean, uh, this uh, new kind of alliance, that's also possible. And just also, if we consider the, 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 the middle term, uh, uh, we'll have election in France in 2027. Yeah. And that's a true danger, uh, because we cannot rule out the possibility for Marine Le Pen uh, to win the election in 2027. Uh, and it will be a true catastrophe for France. I mean, And for Europe. Yes, and for Europe. And for Europe, because, I mean, uh, uh, France uh, remains, and that's just fact, uh, only one EU member state that is a permanent member of the EU, UN Security Council, who is also a nuclear power, and uh, that could offer, because it is a nuclear power, and that's a question mark. I mean, uh, Emmanuel Macron made some proposals some years ago, but not well received, um, to have a kind of enlarged deterrence to other countries. Yes. And that's very important. Just imagine, for instance, that you have Trump elected you know, in the White House uh, in November 2024, and that uh, Trump, or I mean uh, doppelganger, uh, says, well, let's say uh, NATO is obsolete, we will withdraw from NATO, mm -hmm. or we will stop funding NATO, we will withdraw the troops, even if we keep, I mean, the membership, which are different kind of scenarios. Uh, I mean, basically everything will rely on France and probably also outside the EU, the UK. This, exactly. This question of extended deterrence is extremely important, especially in the German context, because it seems as though a lot of the excuses that are used for not delivering weapons to Ukraine center around these fears or, or excuses about deterrence. And, and about, escalation. And escalation, um, which with the fear that actually if the U.S. guarantee goes, then Germany is not covered. It is not a nuclear power like France. And so this, this exactly this kind of bold thinking on extended deterrence within Europe is essential. I yes, exactly. But, but, but I know for sure that for now, Germany refuses even to talk about that. And I mean, that's not, you know, in the central debate. And I mean, also, I mean, you have, of course, you, you were just uh, recalling, I mean, uh, uh, the fear of escalations, you know, by, by uh, Olaf Scholz, uh, which is true. Uh, it consider, he considers as well that there is a risk uh, which from a legal point of view doesn't exist to be a co-belligerent 
uh, and I, I mean international law, it doesn't work because basically if you have a country uh, supporting Ukraine uh, that is defending itself against an aggression according to the Article 51 of the UN Charter, any country that helps a country to defend itself is not belligerent and has a full legitimacy even to strike the hostile country in its own territory. So, I mean, all the arguments made by uh, the Chancellor right now uh, basically uh, don't uh, hold water. And it's very important that more of Germany's allies are clear about telling that to Germany because this, it, it really destroys the country's reputation when there are such incredible arguments that are put forward. Now, we heard from Caroline Goiter on a previous episode that France and Germany have a lot of meetings and talk a lot, but not much is getting accomplished lately. Uh, and Nicola went further on there to say that the Franco-German couple is in shambles right now, particularly when we're discussing the geopolitical future of Ukraine and of Europe as a whole. So let's bring in Jakob Ross and Sylvie Kaufmann. Uh, Sylvie, I actually quite love the title of your book, or at least the English translation of the title, uh, Blindsided, How uh, Berlin and Paris Left the Path Open to Russia. Uh, you've told us actually that the first translation will be in Estonian, uh, so a nice no nod to Central and Eastern Europe. That I look forward to the English one. I'm crossing my fingers um, for that one. Your Estonian remains a work in progress, doesn't it? I'm afraid so. I'm afraid it is extremely difficult language, or so I am told. Um, so let's go to you, Sylvie, first. Is that statement fair, in shambles? Just how bad are things right now? Yes, I think they are pretty bad. Some of the European partners of France talk of a historic low in this uh, relationship because it's, uh, it's not only a problem for France and Germany, it's also a problem for their European partners. So, uh, yes, I would say they are... Um, they are bad. And there's, I think there's an admission on both sides that they are bad. So that tells you something. That's a good indication. Um, so on the French side, there's a, a, a deep sense of disappointment with this current German government, I think. So, there are, you know, there are many reasons and, and they are not... There's been high and lows in, in the Franco-German relationship. It's not like it's always been wonderful or it's always been bad there. And there's another specificity to the Franco-German relationship, which is very interesting. It's, it's its structure. Even when it's bad, it's still a very strong relationship because of, of the structure uh, which has been imposed on it by the Treaty of Élysée in 1963. So... Um, that treaty has strengthened this relationship with a lot of permanent contacts between uh, civil servants, between administration, between um, uh, including local administration. So um, it's not like France and Germany are not talking to each other. They are because there are really a lot of contacts from at the bottom, and this is something you cannot really. Erase. It is there. And it's, I think it is a very, very important feature of, of the relationship. But you were talking about the engine, and that's the problem. The engine has to be uh, lit up from the top, and that's not happening at the moment. The engine has stalled, and nobody is trying to push it again. So that's the problem. Right. And so, Jakob, it seems really like 
they're currently the leaders of France and Germany, the high-level politicians who are supposed to provide this catalyst, this spark, this ignition, are doomed to go through this series of formal meetings where no one wants to be there. Well, th that has been a, a matter of conversation for, for years now, whether or not these uh, high-level summits uh, are actually helping uh, or if they are just... Uh, Uh, institutionalized, as Sylvie just explained, since the Elysee Treaty, there's a lot of exchange that is forced upon uh, the administrations on the political level to a certain degree. And uh, I just read the, the book of a former uh, long-term French ambassador to Berlin, Claude Martin, who wrote about these meetings and who actually uh, witnessed to the fact that uh, already at, at his time, uh, between 1999 and uh, 2007 in Berlin, These summits were uh, not appreciated by all, that there were a lot of ministers and members of the cabinets who were not very keen on going to these summits because they were wondering what was actually coming out of them. Um, if, if it was only to meet each other for the symbolic part of the Franco-German relationship or indeed if uh, these summits were, uh, as Sylvie said, uh, reigniting the, the, the engine and, and bringing the broader uh, uh, Europe forward. But I think, um, and again, there's different schools uh, in the Franco-German community on this, but uh, I think that many are uh, convinced that you need a good personal relationship at the heads, heads of state and government uh, between Chancellor Scholz and, and President Macron uh, to go forward with regards to many questions. That's why uh, they recently met in Hamburg at the beginning of October. We had this uh, Fischbrötchen gate, you know, when many people... Uh, yes, it looked like that was an interesting way to try and reboot a failing relationship. If it well, comes down to this, you know, it shows that there's a problem. Yeah. Yes, well, and, but you had other initiatives. You had the um, uh, state visit of Emmanuel Macron that had to be cancelled uh, back in, in June because of the events... Uh, um, uh, after the, the killing of the 17-year-old in the, in the Parisian suburbs. And there's a generalized feeling that to this date, and I mean, we are uh, two years uh, after uh, the new coalition in Germany uh, took office, there's still not a relationship of trust at the highest level. Um, again, as Sylvie said, um, this has been the case in the past between other couples, as they are called, between the chancellor and the president. But most of the time, they, they developed a relationship uh, throughout the months, uh, often forged in crisis, as you said in the beginning, the Eurozone uh, or the first uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014 um, through the, the diplomatic uh, initiatives that were taken by France and Germany. And we are still not there uh, at the current moment. There's a feeling that this trust uh, is not established yet between Chancellor Scholz and President Macron. Just a practical question on that then. I mean, we, we've all been in these relationships where it's going through a bad patch and you have to turn up to these functions together and it's, it's dire, it's joyless, it's horrible. But aside from that obvious lack of chemistry and aside from the fact both sides will admit in, in private or even in public that things aren't going well, what are the signs that could be seen externally that this relationship is in trouble? What is happening or not happening? Well, that's a good way of putting it. What is happening and what is not happening because what is not happening is probably more important. Yeah, So, um, 
There, there are a lot of differences, uh, for instance, on, on nuclear energy, on European industrial policy, on fiscal rules of the European Union, on defense. Uh, th- these are two very different countries. These are two very different economies. Um, so these, um, it's not like these differences of opinion or, 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 of, or visions are new, but they are now an issue like uh, nuclear energy or um, uh, fiscal rules. These are now at the top of the agenda in, in the European Union. So the fact that the two biggest economies don't agree, don't have the same uh, view, you know, vision of where to go on, or, or what, what should be the role of nuclear energy uh, in the um, electricity market, for instance, that uh, that is more of a problem now because you know because since the uh, war in Ukraine and and since uh, Germany had to get rid of Russian gas, uh, this has become this energy issue has become really a number one issue. So so it's more visible. The differences have always been there. But they are more visible and they have more consequences. Actually, they did come to a compromise because about the about the price of electricity and 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 the uh, Role of um, of nuclear energy. So um, and they both sides pretended that they won the compromise. So that's a good sign. So eventually, you know, the, it does. It does. Uh, they, they, it, as they say, the good thing. The French say the good, or the French officials say the good thing about our relationship with Germany is that we. It's difficult, but we always end up. Uh, building up a compromise. So there you are. But again, I'm coming back to this issue of the engine. And and so uh, the European partners, many of them say in Brussels, they complain. They say, we've never seen such a, a lack of cooperation or coordination between the two. And to me, it's intriguing that they are still complaining about this as if the U.S., when there were 12 of us, for instance. And um, there's been so much talk la- uh, last year about the shift of uh, center of gravity to the east. And it seems, you know, that France and Germany were losing it because they had uh, had the wrong uh, policy about uh, Russia. And yet we're still stuck to this Franco-German tandem, you know, and it's... Uh, alleged importance. Of course, it is important economically, but I think uh, we are bound to find other dynamics, I think, than this one. It's interesting. I want to come back to that quickly, that differential approach and outlook on Central and Eastern Europe and Ukraine for the moment, because uh, on our episode about Central and Eastern Europe, we heard from Caroline de Groeter about um, a, a sort of a change in mindset amongst French civil servants in particular. Um, around Central and Eastern Europe and around Ukraine and about where precisely Ukraine belonged uh, in the European family. Uh, And she um, noted that from her observations that this was potentially a generational change, that sort of particularly a younger generation of French civil servants uh, were more keen to um, involve Central and Eastern Europe and Ukraine. Um, So uh, I'd like to ask whether you think uh, that's the case and whether you think a change in mindset like that is permanent. Um, and if it is, how does Germany deal with that? We should definitely go to Jakob first on that, because that's a point I've stolen from him on countless occasions. <laughs> Thank you. That's a question I ask myself in, in the research uh, and in the conversations I have with uh, uh, civil servants in the foreign ministry, in the defense ministry in France, um, if there is this kind of generational change away from 
what many in Germany, but also in other partner countries of France would describe as traditional Gaullism, um, which was or has been problematic for French relations with Eastern Europe because it was so focused, and that's what you describe in your book, uh, Sylvie uh, Les Aveugles, so focused on Russia as the, the primary partner of every conversation going on in Eastern Europe. Um, and the same actually holds true uh, for uh, Franco-African relations. If these young civil servants, if there is indeed a new generation of uh, diplomats, of Uh, administrators of politicians as well, since Macron in his speech uh, to, to the African youth in 2017 actually underlined the fact that he was part of a generation that had nothing to do with uh, colonialism, that he wanted to modernize uh, French relations with this part of the world. So I think it's a very good question to ask in Eastern Europe uh, as well, but in Paris primarily, Uh, younger diplomats, uh, young officials in, in the ministries. And I think that um, there is at least some indicators uh, um, that could lead us to the conclusion that, yes, there is a generational shift, that uh, Gaullism is changing, that the, the place of Gaullism in, in French foreign policy is, I don't know if it's fading or if it's being modernized. I would hope that it's modernized because I think there's much that is still very useful for the European debate in, in the Gaullist uh, worldview. But I think that um, there's uh, many people, and especially in the Quai d'Orsay, that are keen to modernize this and to try to combine the traditional French uh, Gaullist vision with a more European uh, vision uh, of, of foreign and defense policy, for instance. Perhaps we can ask you both just quickly to, um, because this is an important concept for understanding Franco-German relations and also French relations to Europe more widely. How, how would you define Gaulism? Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> right with the huge existential questions on don't, Berlin's don't side ask, out. Right don't in. ask a French person to define Gaullism because Gaullism is just such a structural part of the Fifth Republic, yeah, which uh, started in 1958 and we still have this constitution. He casts such a shadow on the foreign on French foreign policy, yeah. And I think also from abroad. Um, France is still very much seen as trying to enact the legacy of, of the goal. Uh, we have this uh, uh, expression also for our foreign policy, which is Golo Mitterrandien. So in a way, that's the modernized version of Gaullism. It's uh, how it's the goal, the goal's view of the world uh, mixed with Mitterrand's view of the world, which makes it a little bit more modern, I guess. But I agree with this generational thing. Everybody also, and then particularly the new generations, understand that the world is very different from what it was under the goal, so that we have to adjust. And, and I think uh, along these lines that you described, that Jacob described earlier, uh, there's, for instance, Clément Beaune, who was Macron's um, European advisor, Uh, and who was quite close to him until he left the Elysee. He's now the Minister of Transports uh, because he wants to have a role in politics. So he ran for parliament and then uh, joined the government. So, But when he was um, a European advisor to Macron at the Elysee, he was the one who advised him to go east and to um, uh, visit those countries on the eastern flank of Europe, not only Poland, but also Slovakia, but also uh, the Baltic states, and, because, and, and also to go north, 
um, to Finland. I think Macron went to Finland and he, there, have, there hadn't been a, a visit by a French president for decades in Finland when he went there. So he did try, but I think there was still a lot of mistrust in, the, in that area of, in that region of Europe towards France. Uh, maybe because of the goal's legacy and, and, and image. Uh, and that probably changed after France changed its position on Ukraine and Russia. I think there's also a lot of um, what, what you would call in, in, in theory path de dependency because goalism is so much part of the institutions of the Fifth Republic that uh, if, if you take the armed forces, um, the ministries, the way French foreign policy functions, I mean, the Assemblée Nationale, the Parliament, that doesn't have a, a big role, at least compared to the Bundestag in Germany, that these things are very hard to change. And this shows not only in the shift uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, perceived or, or real uh, French foreign policy shift uh, regarding Eastern Europe, but also is a big debate on Franco-African uh, relations, what, what will happen in Western Africa, is if the military presence, uh, for instance, the military bases are still relevant today, if they still have a place in uh, the 21st century. And I think uh, all of these questions are constantly negotiated in inside France. Uh, I mean, the very question if we don't need a sixth republic uh, has been asked last year throughout the presidential campaign. So I think there's a lot of movement in the French debate and uh, Emmanuel Macron initially was very keen to take this movement and try to moderate it. And I mean, we can ask the question six years later if he was successful or not, or if the conservative forces uh, were, were stronger than he was uh, in the end. But Uh, I think it's a, a good question to enter into uh, what's going on in French foreign and security policy. There's one feature from Gaul the Gaulle's legacy that uh, is also interesting because it's also a factor in the Franco-German relationship. It's uh, the French uh, uh, people's attitude to, towards their armed forces and towards defense. Uh, de Gaulle was a general. <laughs> He was a military man. And, and the French... Um, actually love their armed forces. You know, we have this huge parade every uh, July 14 for Bastille Day on the Champs-Élysées, and it's incredibly popular. I watched that on TV since I was a child, and every family does that. The French have no problem um, about intervening abroad, about, you know, with foreign intervention of their armed forces. That's what they did in Africa for before being kicked out. Uh, and that's also a very big difference with Germany, which for obvious reasons, uh, has a very different attitude towards um, um, defense and, and foreign intervention, military intervention. While you said it would take a very long answer from a French person to, to describe Gaulism, it would often take quite a short answer from the Brits <laughs> to describe <laughs> it, I think. But just its key components would be a strong France at the heart of a strong Europe, uh, using European institutions for French benefit, but using French power for European benefit. This is roughly the ideas that we're talking about there, and a willingness to intervene abroad to achieve that, the assertion of a strong, clear-minded vision, and showing leadership from the front. Of course, France has faced some problems in finding followers 
in that um, in recent times, as we've discussed. But certainly the, the move to actually visit more places in, the, in Central Eastern Europe and indeed to Germany. I mean, Macron's European advisors deserve credit, I think, certainly uh, not only Clement Bowen, but Alexandra Adam and people like that who were pushing this for making Macron not only recently try hamburger fish brochen, but also having finished coffee last year, which went down about as well from the press photos that we can see. I did want to ask in terms of all of these changes that we're seeing in France, um, and I asked earlier whether these changes are permanent. Um, but then we seem to be um, left with a Germany that um, doesn't really quite know what to make of these changes that are in France and doesn't really know necessarily about what it actually uh, does with them and, and how where to take the Franco-German relationship given that context. Um, is that fair to say? And uh, how does Germany actually handle a shift like that? Maybe to take a step back for, for the French, many of the reactions and discussions in, that are taking place in Paris today, I think our reaction to the German side and, and the fact that Germany is recalibrating its positions and at least in discourse for now, uh, is changing its foreign policy identity or is trying to, to do so in the future. And so I think that the German way to look at France and Paris today is very much um, the same, uh, is, is the question, is there something akin to the Zeitenwende happening in, in Paris? Is uh, the shift that is happening uh, in uh, with regards to Eastern European uh, policies that Macron is taking, is it tactical or is it a longer-term strategic a shift of the French posture in this region and how do we Germans react to that? I mean, the, it is often said that uh, the French are, um, are, are a bit uh, skeptical about the Germans wanting to challenge their leadership with regards to defense policies, for instance, in the European Union. But the same holds true, I think, for the German position in Eastern Europe, Europe where Germany was traditionally much more present than the French were. And so if Macron, uh, if, if the Bratislava agenda, as it's called in the French uh, di diplomatic corps, is to be something of longer term, then how do the Germans react to that? How do the Germans react to the fact that the French want to be more present in Eastern Europe, want to shift resources from, say, a Western African military bases to the uh, eastern flank, to NATO's eastern flank, will become more present in NATO discussions as well. I mean, that would be a huge uh, shift as well. So I think there's a lot of movement, and this might be part of the answer why things are not uh, as great as uh, they, they could be in Franco-German relations right now, just because everything is moving very fast. Everything's moving very fast, but we still don't know where Germany's going is one of the things. They might be moving, but where is it actually going is a big question that we often ask on this show. But, Silvia, you mentioned attitudes to military before being very different in the two countries, and that's something that we might think didn't need to be changed in the French Zeitenwender or the French Bratislava agenda, but nonetheless it used to be very much an expeditionary military for going out solving problems around the world or making them in some cases, as we found out with the expeditions from, from the UK, US and France in recent years. But this shift to territorial defense and to taking the Russian threat seriously is something that is, is really felt, it would seem, and will win friends in Central Eastern Europe and possibly follow us, will it? Yeah, I think it's still um, not... I mean, this should be... Uh, um called also a Zeitenwende, probably, because what happened in Africa over the past few months is really a, a very consequential um, uh, change and turnaround of events for France. Uh, um, you know, I mean, this was really a fixture of foreign policy, French foreign policy, this presence in, in uh, West Africa and in sub-Sahara Africa. 
in French-speaking Africa also. And so there were that military presence. There was this really very important diplomatic activity also. Um, not so important economically, uh, paradoxically, but, um, you know, politically and, and, and uh, militarily. Now this is over. And I don't think because there's so much going on uh, in the world at the moment with Ukraine, with Israeli and Palestine, and so on, I don't think people in France have really, um, it hasn't sunk in yet, uh, the, the dimension of this withdrawal, French withdrawal from Africa. But on the, the, the defense um, uh, consequences should be that, yes, this, expedi this expeditionary um, uh, policy or tradition of the French armed forces will have to be converted into something different. And yes, it will have to be focused probably much more on the Eastern Front and on strengthening the Eastern Front. France is already um, quite present in Romania, uh, helping uh, Romania to defend its, uh, uh, that area um, militarily, but that's in, within NATO. And, you know, there are suggestions that maybe those forces which are being uh, moved away from Africa should be maybe converted to continental Europe. Obviously, I'm not a defense expert, but these are probably different uh, equipment because you don't uh, use the same equipment in the desert and in in, uh, in east uh, in Eastern Europe. Financially, also, I think that would be would have to be taken into account. So that's that's a that's an important change for for France. And um, I think you know you, you were talking about Zeitenwende and Germany, and maybe you could also say that Bratislava, the Bratislava speech was a, a kind of Zeitenwende for France. But on on the implementation of those agendas, it has less consequences for France than for Germany. I mean, the Zeitenwende um, agenda for Germany was energy, you know, complete change on energy, on defense. Uh, in France, uh, had far less reduced its uh, uh, defense uh, budget than, than Germany. Uh, so, Yes, there are. I mean, for France, the, the biggest change was to reorient its, its policy towards Russia and towards Central Europe. But it didn't have to change either its uh, energy policy or, or uh, its defense policy. It's changing its defense policy because of what's happened in Africa, not because of what happened in Russia. Because of nuclear, of course, right? <laughs> as, as we covered on episode five, exactly. and our special bonus on nuclear power and Germany's nuclear taboo. And France, to quickly come back to that, uh, certainly didn't have to change its mi foreign policy mindset with regards to geopolitics and the fact that military force remains a part of uh, foreign policy. You know, And that's why I think... Uh, traditional French uh, foreign policy thinking, uh, Gaullist thinking, still has some value if the French or we as, as uh, uh, Europeans could manage to Europeanize it because I think that's something that's very much lacking in the German debate and the Germans would actually uh, could learn a lot from the French uh, in this regard uh, in, in terms of what, what is strategic thinking uh, how to manage uh, foreign affairs with uh, constrained resources. But again, this would presuppose that the, the French go, go uh, all the way and say that um, this kind of thinking is not, uh, as traditionally would be the case, sovereign in terms of uh, the nation state, but something that can be Europeanized and a conversation to be, 
to we have uh, right i mean level. this is this is it from le grand nation to le grand continent as the publication in paris goes which we've been lucky enough to be featured in um this it raises another question though because you said the french geopolitical mindset didn't need to change now a lot of people in central eastern europe would disagree with that because part of gaullism is about great power politics part of that was about dealing face to face with putin as equals as peers at the top table of international relations and never mind about those smaller countries of central eastern europe or others who would potentially get trampled over in the deals done by the quote unquote big boys and this is precisely what was being objected to so i wonder if that is also part of the french titan vendor to what extent it's actually happening and to what extent it relates to france's colonial legacy you mentioned the withdrawal from africa um as a, a a strange thing for the national psyche to absorb, which it will probably take some time to do. But um, certainly there have been very good books on this, on the relation between the European project and Africa, the Eurafrica book, Jakob, that I know you're a big fan of. But is this mindset changing too, Sylvie, this great power mentality? Probably not. But I think there's, a, of course, there's an awareness of those huge changes in the world. And, and for instance, one one pride uh, or one source of this feeling of uh, being a great power is the permanent is the seat of permanent member at the security council right at the un but what is the security council doing today nothing it's paralyzed so uh, the french voice is probably <laughs> less important there because you know there's it's it's there, there are no results. There, there's nothing happening in, in, in out of New York. Um, so, uh, no, I think there's still, of course, France is still a nuclear power. Um, and that's, uh, that's a very important, that's also a legacy of, of De Gaulle. And that's a very important fi fixture of, of French foreign policy. But I think f there's really something which is very important now in the French uh, uh, foreign policy psyche, which is that France without Europe is nothing. And um, uh, recently a, a French official told me, for us, uh, the EU is our life insurance. It's, uh, it's our passport. And I think this way of, uh, of putting things is quite revealing. It's, uh, um, and that's why also France is very often suspected by its partners of, of when, when it's pushing the European project, uh, its partners say, of course, you want a French Europe, right? Uh, so, yeah, maybe. Uh, but France, I think the European project is so important for the French identity today. It's really something which is uh, essential. And, uh, and there's this feeling also in Paris that it is not... Uh, this this uh, feeling is not so deeply shared in, in Berlin, yeah, that. Um, so I would like to have Jacob's uh, feeling, uh, impression about this. Yeah, that's what we keep telling people in in Berlin who are very critical of the French and French uh, ideas for Europe at the moment is that uh, Emmanuel Macron is by far the most pro-European president that the Fifth Republic at least uh, has seen, and so the the question whether or not he succeeds with. Um, implementing his ideas that he exposed uh, in the Sorbonne speech in 2017, a more sovereign Europe, if these ideas succeed, will decide as well if the French vote will go to pro-European uh, uh, positions in the future. And I think uh, we will see that in the upcoming European elections where President Macron and his party will probably 
uh, have a very pro-European campaign once again, as they did in 2017, in 2019, and then in 2022 for the French elections again. Um, but there's other voices in the French debate that are actually gaining momentum as well. And I think that's uh, crucial to repeat, uh, especially in, in Berlin, where, yes, there are many voices who say Franco-German relations are tend to be a thing of the past, maybe anachronistic. The European Union is different today. It's, it's bigger, it's, it's more diverse in, term, in ge geographical terms. Uh, there's this shift uh, to Eastern Europe. But I think that uh, nobody really wants to find out what would happen if we would have a, an anti-European uh, president in France with the power that the Fifth Republic uh, gives this uh, president. Um, and so I think that with all its defaults, these, these pro-European commitments by President Macron should be taken a bit more into consideration because he's, he has taken risks in the past. The fact that he uh, did a very pro-European campaign in 2017 surprised many people. The fact that re he repeated that in 2019 and in 2022 was even more surprising in the debates we saw in France. And I think that should be at least on the credit side if we judge um, how uh, French foreign policy has evolved on, on European uh, questions these past years. Ben, you mentioned earlier um, how Brits might view Gaulism, and it struck me for a minute when we were talking about um, Europe just now. Uh, Europe for the benefit of France, um, you know, but also for the benefit of Europe, willingness to use military power and willingness to lead from the front. In some ways, that sounds very opposite to Germany. <laughs> so Germany likes to lead from behind. Um, it likes to uh, say things are for um, European benefit when they are primarily um, for uh, German benefit. And it certainly has proven that That's it's... something in common between the two. Well, right? I mean, right. yes. It, but the, the way that it exercises power can certainly be different. I mean, you know, German officials or sometimes Angela Merkel especially was much more comfortable in, in Brussels back rooms, for example, than in leading from the front. Uh, yet I would say, Jakob, that it is a project um, that is important to everyday Germans um, and that this is something that I think uh, is shared uh, is, is a shared value with, with the French. Um, however cynically some German officials may view uh, the European Union, this is certainly something that is important to the identity of everyday Germans and how they see themselves um, in the world. Um, but when it comes to that high level, that high political level, uh, is some of this relationship sometimes mutually reinforcing dysfunctionalities um, for the benefit of both? We often hear uh, the saying that the Franco-German motor uh, is a way to mask German strength and French weakness. Where does the saying come from? Um, how true is it, uh, both in the past and today? That's a very good question to ask if you want to know if something has shifted, because uh, I heard repeatedly from French diplomats that uh, Bratislava was also the moment when the German hiding behind French opposition to Ukrainian NATO membership, uh, European Union membership uh, stopped. The French apparently said... Uh, they hid behind the US instead. Well, maybe. I mean, that, that's After one that explanation. After a moment of horror, thinking our cover's gone, we, then it's hiding behind Biden, right? I mean. Yes, and as, as you rightly said, I think uh, in the past, the, the Germans were very um, comfortable in hiding behind uh, very uh, self-confident French positions on many issues that many other fought, probably, in Brussels, uh, on NATO summits, but nobody... Uh, wanted to express. I mean, uh, as you said in the beginning, uh, Ben, 
Macron has been criticized as, as think tanker in chief just because he's so vocal about some of the ideas that... Uh, well, because he actually comes up with ideas. Yes, And absolutely. actually has big visions. Yeah. Mine, mine, mine was as a think tanker. Mine was not a criticism. Of him. It should be, it should be <laughs> no, but I mean, he, he has been very, very much but criticized. But you're not running for president. No. It, yeah. Internally and externally. I mean, we all remember the, this uh, anecdote on the flight back from uh, his visit to Chi in, in April when he talked about... Uh, the European Union in the Indo-Pacific between the US and China and the, these kinds of positions that are, I think, often shared by partner countries but that are never expressed in public. But I think the, the French shift uh, with regards, say, to uh, Ukrainian NATO membership, uh, the very st strong support of France for this membership question, which some have called a, a, an anti-Bucharest, so that exactly the opposite of what was happening in 2008 now happened where the US was, was critical or skeptical with regards to this membership question, is indeed a good indicator that something indeed has shifted, that French positions evolved, and in this particular example that Germany needs to, to follow suit and, and has to react because um, France has moved apparently, so what, what about Germany now? And how, how possible is that going to necessarily remain, particularly if we look at next year's election in the U.S.? Uh, we do see the possibility that um, Donald Trump may win a game or indeed that we may have someone like Donald Trump win a game with that, with that worldview. So let's throw this back for a minute, um, a couple of years, to the CDU um, Christian Democrat Manifesto of 2017, Angela Merkel's party at the time. It mentioned France dozens of times. That same manifesto, um, which was drafted in the aftermath of the first Donald Trump presidency, and we'll see if it's the only, um, was the first one to mention the U.S. Uh, as being a partner rather than a friend. Uh, a very, very uh, key uh, distinction in language. So to me, it almost reflected uh, this German impulse to let's go to France if the U.S. is unreliable. It didn't really mention much in terms of what uh, they actually wanted to do with uh, the relationship with France, simply that, oh, we have to cooperate more than France. But what is the object? What is the object of that cooperation, right? And it doesn't seem like anyone even now necessarily knows. Yeah, well, actually, you, you may remember that when Donald Trump was elected, I was going to say the first time, I hope it was the last time, but it will be the last time. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, slip of the tongue, unfortunate. Um, Angela Merkel said, now we have to take our fate in our hands. But then she didn't implement this. Nothing really happened. Right. And um, the Germans were terribly uncomfortable, of course, with Trump's term, of course, because they were uh, the main target of Trump's anger all the time. And he was, I mean, the, the, the recollections of diplomats of those NATO summits or G7 summits when, when Trump was really picking on Angela Merkel and making her life miserable in front of everybody. It, that was really, and, you know, he was obsessed with German motor industry and those Mercedes and whatever. So uh, for Germany, it was a very uncomfortable time and for Francis was not that uncomfortable uh, because we all remember Daft Punk at the Elysee <laughs> yeah. but you may remember that uh, Macron went to Washington and tried to charm uh, Trump you know because he wanted to convince him not to withdraw from the Iranian nuclear deal and he failed 
he didn't charm Trump and, uh, you know, but they managed to have a kind of working relationship. They would call each other, they would talk. Uh, at least they had this ongoing dialogue, which was a little bit easier than with Germany. And France was trying to take advantage of this very cold relationship with Europe to build this agenda of Macron's strategic autonomy. So this is a big difference. We'll see what will happen if we do have another Republican in the White House next year. But I think France now is less, will be less comfortable because of what's going on in the world and because of the war in Ukraine. So I see a lot of panic. I feel a lot of panic uh, in European capitals about this prospect, you know, those polls which show that Biden is not in a very good position now. And there's really a sense of panic because of, uh, our commitments, um, particularly in, in Ukraine. Uh, but I don't see any, any sign again of taking our fate in our hands. Right. I this don't is see what I was going to say, yeah. exactly, because there's a lot of gnashing and wailing in Berlin as well about the prospect of uh, Trumpism coming back in one form or another. But what is being done about it? If this was seen as a serious risk, for example, to the U.S. security guarantee or to the U.S. commitment in NATO at all, we would see a much more serious military buildup in Germany. We would see the kind of discussions about extended deterrence happening with London and Paris in a much more serious way. So is this really seen as a threat or is this cynical posturing? I think they're dragging their feet. I mean, this is a threat. This, uh, this is the time to uh, think seriously about what's, what should be done. I, a French, a French uh, official told me um, recently, if we give up Ukraine, if we give up on Ukraine, it is the end of the European project. So this is what is at stake, and, and there's an awareness of this. But, you know, how do you convince your partners in Brussels that you have really to take this very seriously and prepare for the worst. Yes, this is uh, it. So yeah. are, are there any so. indications that we are seeing this? I mean, that is as clear as day. That's a fantastic statement. If we give up on Ukraine, it's the end of the European project. I think that's how many of us see it. Many people we've had on the podcast see it. But the message hasn't yet been received in Berlin, for one thing. We see that. We think thinking back to the Trump one administration, that footage of Heiko Maas, the then foreign minister and his advisors, laughing at Trump for his warnings on Russia. I mean, for all Trump's sins, he was right about that. And this is the kind of blindsiding, perhaps, so we, that your book talks about in, in Germany. But what is then being done? And Jakob, from, from what you know, is there willingness on either side to consider, for example, this suggestion of extended deterrence from France to Germany? Uh, which means that the French nuclear deterrent would be also used to cover uh, cover Germany's defense? Once again, the idea has been in the room and with us since 2020, since Macron gave his speech at the Ecole de Guerre, but uh, at least to my knowledge, and I might, might not be aware of all the discussions ongoing, uh, that's for sure, but there hasn't been great interest in engaging in this discourse and even if we uh, take uh, the European Skysheet Initiative, uh, the French are constantly asking the Germans to take into consideration nuclear deterrence and the nuclear dimension of this Skysheet Initiative, which seems to be, at least on an official level and uh, in public discussion or the, the available discussions uh, to our uh, conversations, uh, seems to be ignored by, by the German side. So I think that... Um, on, on this level, no, it's, it's not, the risk is not taken seriously. And um, I would just 
want to add on the, the question of Trump and if, if Trumpism uh, might come back uh, in 2024, I think it's, it's even, I, I mean, it's much deeper than Trump. I think the US, the shift, that the pivot that everybody has been talking about for years now uh, is, is not something that we can only stick to Trump and Trumpism. I think it's, it's, it's a broader movement of US uh, interests and resources being committed to other parts of the world than Europe. I mean, in Germany, many people have, have been falling back to traditional transatlantic positions because Biden seems like uh, transatlanticism as we know it is, is still very very much alive and well, but I'm not convinced it is. I think uh, many in the US are actually planning for a Asian 21st century. And so the Europeans, uh, if, if it is for Trump or not for Trump, need to get their act together. Well, then it becomes less possible to hide, uh, for example, as uh, Olaf Scholz did behind Biden on these kinds of questions like uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian membership of NATO, which France favors. Right, at that point, the tide's gone out and you've been shown to be swimming without your clothes. And by that stage, it's too late. So yes, and I think, I mean, the, the Biden-Scholz relationship with regards to weapon deliveries is a very good example because, I mean, there have been uh, ample interpretations and on this sh show uh, as well uh, as to what the motivation behind Scholz always waiting for the White House uh, positions uh, is. But I think the nuclear dimension, for instance, is definitely part of, of, of this. I mean, the fact that France can take free decisions uh, in a way because of its own national nuclear deterrence and Germany in a way is, is binded to the US with uh, nuclear burden sharing and, and um, the US bombs in Germany is, is definitely part of, of how these decisions uh, are taken in the chancery, yes. They are, but we, we know that's more as part of a wider nuclear deterrent. Actually having a nuclear deterrent uh, would be something else. And I mean, we can only look forward to, after the fun we've had with discussing civil nuclear power in Germany, we can oh. look forward with great relish <laughs> oh. to the discussion about the German bomb. Um, <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> so, um, Never afraid to tackle the tough topics, are we? As we've been talking about, uh, certainly France is important um, to Germany and uh, it comes up in so many political um, discussions all the time, um, both about the future of Europe and also about, you know, as we've been mentioning before, um, the, the impulse of if the U.S. ends up being unreliable, that oh, your first port of call is Paris and that will make everything all better. Um, why, but why is uh, France so important to Germany. It certainly goes, I think, um, beyond that and uh, vice versa, actually. Why? That's something that we certainly don't always necessarily hear or talk about in Berlin as much as maybe we should. Why is Germany so important to France? Some argue that Germany is more important to France than the other way around. And I think economically, that's probably a fact. Yeah, but um, of course there are historical reasons. <laughs> uh, we were at war a number of times. France was invaded a number of times and uh, by Germany, and now you have this region of Alsace-Lorraine, which is really at the heart of a very strong, a very pro-European and pro-German relation. You know, uh, attitude. So it's right. quite interesting how history has been digested here. But I wanted to. Uh, introduce one country that we haven't mentioned, and it's Poland. And that's, I think, is going to uh, be a factor, an important factor to watch in the, f 
very uh, near future of the Franco-German relationship. I think it's uh, the the results of the recent election in in Poland is going to change a lot of things uh, in in Europe and particularly in relation in relation to to France and Germany. So this I'm not sure this Weimar triangle is um, uh, is the magic formula. You know, uh, Warsaw, Berlin, Paris. Uh, it, it may I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting. Uh, composition but um i think france is uh, is going to look much more to poland now because it it, it it of course the dialogue will be much easier with this uh, next government and of course the german polish relationship hopefully will get much better but it will be more difficult because it's been so bad and so difficult that uh, it will probably take a little bit of time, but I think we may have a new dynamic here, which will be interesting. I hope so. It's a very, very important point, and that's exactly the kind of relationality that we try and draw out on this this podcast to show that it's never the country just on its own. It's through its relationships, and adding that third party at least in there is extremely important. Jakob? Yeah, just on the question uh, why France is so important for Germany and vice versa, uh, I, I would... Instead of answering the question, I would uh, witness to the fact that this question is very much discussed within the, the Franco-German circles throughout this uh, year of the 60th anniversary of the, the signing of the Élysée Treaty. I think there's a generalized sentiment, and not only in foreign and defense policy, but in cultural policy, in all of these uh, civil society initiatives, what the red threat or the, the, the real motive is of the Franco-German relationship as it stands today, because reconciliation, uh, like in the 50s and 60s, um, uh, at the time of the signature of the Elysee Treaty, is, is is not it. I mean, that's, that's for sure. Um, I recently heard in a discussion that the generation that uh, de Gaulle addressed in his famous uh, speech to the German youth in Ludwigsburg in 1962, uh, sorry, um, this generation is now retired and, and a new generation is actually asking this question, why is this relationship to France uh, so important to us? Why does it matter to us? I mean, if you ask young French people coming to Berlin, it's, it's certainly a question they discuss. Uh, they are not, it's, it's not the same as people coming from France to Germany in the 50s and 60s, learning German, getting involved in, in, in German culture. It's a very different mindset and so, um, I don't think we have a definite good answer uh, for now, but um, everybody is really uh, seeking it because I think it, it still remains uh, fundamental for the broader European Union and the uh, European project. We know it's fundamental, but we don't quite know why. Um, it's, it's possibly a reasonable description of the current state. But it strikes me also that the success of that past rehabilitation of the relationship we're seeing the fruits of that now in the normalization of the relationship, actually. The very fact that France isn't perhaps seen so special or Germany isn't seen as being so special or you can't quite put your finger on that magic thing that is there is testimony to what has actually been achieved. And I think this speaks more widely to Germany's stuttering legitimation model of its ways of dealing with foreign policy, that it has been so focused on the past rather than being actually focused on creating that better future. And so this... And it was even Tony Judd famously wrote at the end of his book, Post-War, that Europe's future was forever mortgaged to the memory of its past. But I think 
the generation now is saying, well, no, it doesn't have to be like that. We actually have to reimagine a future in its own right. And it's that that we haven't seen France and Germany collectively be able to do. Yet, nonetheless, a lot of people still feel that the French Franco-German motor is a necessary, if not sufficient, condition for yeah, further European it's progress. Also, it's at the heart of the European project. I mean, it was built by those two countries, basically. I mean, of course, there were other founding member states, but it was, you know, the uh, goal and Adenauer that was really very important. And there's one thing which I find funny in today's politics, but which also uh, uh, shows the, the, the importance of this relationship still today. It's when when uh, we have problems with the UK, when, you know, diplomatic problems, like there were a few with Boris Johnson. Don't know and, what you mean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, like between France and, and, and the UK, it, it very quickly goes out of hand. You know, they call each other names and uh, it's... Uh, uh, it's totally uh, until somebody bring you know the media go crazy and it's a very explosive in a way a relationship in Ge- with Germany it never goes out of hand because the French and the Germans know that it cannot go out of hand it has to be brought under control very quickly and it remains civilized yeah so that's because it's so important I think yeah I would agree and and go back to uh, an earlier point in the conversation because. If, if that's not true anymore, then, then what is the alternative? I mean, 20 years ago, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, you mentioned old Europe, new Europe, uh, talked about NATO Europe as something that he saw on the horizon with NATO enlargement uh, had already happened in 2003 and EU enlargement was, was on the table for the next year. But what would NATO Europe mean to the European Union as we see it? I mean, what would it mean for every single discussion that doesn't have to do with with defense policy. I I think uh, these are questions where the the Franco-German relationship still remains at the center of the European Union, even though the shift towards the East is perceived, even though the the Union is preparing for enlargement uh, into the Western Balkans, uh, to Ukraine uh, in in, in the near future. And if I may, I mean, uh, once more, I think that in this particular Discussion. Emmanuel Macron actually was the one who had the ideas. I mean, he coined the slogan of we need a Europe that protects in his 2019 uh, campaign, which to my mind, at least personal opinion here, but is a good slogan to bring together younger Europeans and craft something that we can work towards to uh, in, in the coming years. Because, I mean, European defense is certainly not the field where integration uh, is already uh, at a good or satisfying point. Yes, uh, l'Europe qui protège. Absolutely, yes. Bravo. See, I've been practicing. Bravo. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, a lot of people would, would agree with you, I think, there, Jacob. A lot would also say it depends what's being protected and who's being protected. And the protection, for example, of the European way of life, the, how that relates to migration or other issues, the garden and the jungle raised by Joseph Borrell, etc. also brings us back to the colonial histories we've touched upon before and we will come back to with you at some point in the future. Um, but you asked, what is the alternative? Alternative. Well, surely the alternative is to get away from that old uh, core, non-core Europe idea, which also came out in 2003, uh, Jürgen Habermas and Jacques Derrida, two uh, intellectuals, a Franco-German couple themselves, who talked about that core Europe and non-core Europe. And it was very clear that Central Eastern Europe was non-core Europe at that stage. So I think the alternative is a diffuse and democratic form of Europe that doesn't require the great powers at its heart 
to take that leading role in quite the same way. Or perhaps sometimes for those uh, great powers, as we say, um, to be comfortable sometimes with following <laughs> at, at certain point, key points in the relationship. This discussion has reminded me uh, of, of how we might discuss a very long marriage <laughs> that has been mostly successful, uh, but might every now and again need a little bit of... <laughs> need, has its ups and downs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> might need a little bit of work. <laughs> so that's probably where we're at at the moment. But instead of going south to the sun, this couple is going east for their retirement. <laughs> <laughs> That's that to cruel. be kept in the, in the recording? Or? <laughs> Why not? I think so. Why not? It's good. Can we just say thank you very much indeed to Sylvie Kaufman and to Jakob Ross uh, for a wonderful discussion on what is a very rich topic. And as you'll have got the idea, there is much more to say on this, which is why we'll be taking it up further with Camille Grand and Georgina Wright in the next episode of Berlin Side Out. And for now, that is all for this episode of Berlin Side Out. Thank you also from me very much to our guests for joining us. You can find out more about them and their recent work in the show notes as always. So be sure to check those out. Until next time, from Berlin, auf Wiedersehen, au revoir, and tschüss.